great invitation, rest for the weary. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. In Psalm 55, it's King David that cries out, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. If there's one thing every human being longs for, I think you'd agree with me, it is rest. We all long to rest in peace, not only after we die, but wouldn't it be nice? Before we die, while we live. You may know the famous prayer of Augustine, who rightly said, Lord, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. One evangelist stated the following, Since the early dawn of mankind's history, when our Eden of bliss became a desert of discord, we have been creatures of restlessness. When we, when we are bereft of the peace that comes from God through the saving grace of Christ, we become like a fish out of water. He goes on to say divorce, alcoholism, immorality. And updating this today, we could surely add the entire homosexual and transgender movements and all the political turmoil in, in this country where the Lord has placed you and me here in South Africa. All these are direct results of the restlessness of sin. This diabolical unrest, he says, has permeated our world. It's like a contagious disease. It's become the underlying cause of domestic, community, and social problems. The basic cause of all, most other social ills, the root, you could say, beneath all the bitter fruits, is this spiritual unrest. Psychologists even confess that psychology is helpless to solve all the mental and nervous disturbances of people today. Some sociologists will admit that sociology cannot cope with the tremendous problems in human relationships. And this famous evangelist goes on to say, In my travels, I have sensed unrest in almost every phase of our modern-day living. This changeable, unsettled, roving, transient, sleepless, fidgety spirit is due to the restlessness of the human heart and its separation from Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Christ of Tranquility. The Bible says, Isaiah 57, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Or over in Deuteronomy 28, in the morning you shall say, oh, that it were evening. And at evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning. Perhaps that's you lately. Surely that is dear souls that you and I know, friends and family and loved ones and neighbors and co-workers. This evangelist concludes, why die of thirst when you stand upon the edge of a bubbling brook? Why starve to death when you are within arm's length of living bread? Why live in a hovel of spiritual misery when Christ has provided a mansion of divine peace? Hear and accept the divine invitation today. Come unto me and rest. This is indeed a grand, a marvelous text, famous to many, loved by Every Christian, once they encounter it, Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, I'm delighted every chance I get to revisit it, and so thankful that Jono and your elders have afforded me this opportunity. Someone has called it extraordinarily rich. It's a, a shining gem. Someone else said it's the most wonderful words ever uttered, uttered by human lips. Another has said it's one of the most memorable passages in all of Scripture. Another says it's a favorite balm to countless souls. One preacher, I think it was Steve Lawson, who said this great invitation could be preached once per month and would never grow old. <laughs> a golden promise indeed. And I knew I was in trouble 
when this text caused Spurgeon himself, the prince of preachers, to say he doesn't even know how to preach. Well, where does that leave the rest of us <laughs> in the face of such a great promise? Let's read the text and then I'll pray. Matthew 11, I'll set the context in a moment. Jesus concludes this great chapter here in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Please, Lord, as Stephen has prayed already, as the men have led us, so we come eager for your rest. You know the need of every soul, every heart, every life, every home represented here this morning in this place and this entire congregation. We're so encouraged at what you're doing here at Livingstone uh, over these last couple of years and to pray that you would continue your work now through your word by your spirit in every life. For Christ's sake we ask it. Amen. If you're not familiar, or we all could use a reminder, Matthew 11 is a pretty hostile chapter. You could say it's about the Christ of the conflicts. And from John the Baptist being imprisoned because his message was rejected, to Jesus' message being rejected uh, in, in the middle of chapter 11. And, and then from verse 16 onwards, Jesus is slandered as basically demon-possessed. He's reviled. He is further rejected. And, and then, shockingly, verse 25, unfazed by all of this, Jesus lifts his heart in praise to God for hiding his teachings from the wise and intelligent and revealing them to babes. And then verse 27 concludes showing that only God's Son has the authority to reveal who the Father is to whomever Christ wills. And yet we come now to verse 28 and all are invited without distinction, impartially, uh, universally. Do you, do you see Jesus standing here the great teacher, the world's only savior, arms outstretched, eyes full of compassion, voice raised, calling out so that none will miss his offer. This astounding promise of rest. And before we come to our outline, which is going to be reasons to rest, I want to be clear on the invitation itself. Look there at the beginning of verse 28. Come to me. And then we'll see later in verse 29, he strengthens, or you could say sweetens, the summons even further by saying, take my yoke. And then a third command, learn from me. Someone has rightly summed it up well. From come to me, he says, come under me. And then you could say, he says, come after me. That's a pretty good summary of what it means to give your life to Jesus, the Bible way, not often the shallow modern way. Come to me, come under me, come after me. It's like a cord of three strands a triple strength invitation. But each time it has the same goal in view. Rest for your souls. I don't know how to put it more simply than this. You won't enjoy his rest until you move from where you are to where he is. It's, notice it's not come to religion. He, he doesn't say come to some ethic or lifestyle or, or uh, uh, you know, do the Christian thing. We hear that often, don't we? Oh, you know, just, just uh, come to church, as important as that is. Come to m certain meetings or events or conferences or seminars or retreats or, or experiences or, or, or classes or courses. Uh, uh, uh. 
as instrumental as those are in the Lord's hands. Notice he doesn't even say come to a certain preacher or church leader or, or uh, pastor or even parents or counselors, as important as they are. It doesn't even say come to Christians. It says come to Christ himself. And, and notice also it's not about coming to Jesus physically. That's been uh, a, lot of, a source of confusion in the last uh, 100 years or so of evangelical Christianity in, in, among Protestants. It's not about waiting for some altar call at the end of the service. It's about coming to Christ spiritually by faith right now, anytime, anyplace, anywhere, without delay. Come to him, Jesus, the person of the risen Lord Jesus Christ as we now know him. Leave your old life behind and run to Jesus. If you can, can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. If you can't crawl, then ask your friends to carry you, as also happened in the Gospels. Do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. I know you're a church like ours that is convinced when the Bible speaks, the Lord Jesus speaks. And so by his Holy Spirit, through his word, right now, Jesus is standing here in this pulpit through his word, making his invitation, summoning you, beckoning you by name, calling you and you and you to come to him. Quit your excuses. Go to him without delay. He declares to you through his authoritative word, come to me and I will give you rest. All day long, he says elsewhere in the Bible, I've held out my hands. Don't wait to improve yourself. Come to Jesus to improve you. Oh, you say, well, uh, I'm waiting for a broken heart. No, come to Jesus for a broken heart. Oh, no, no. Uh, I'm waiting for more faith. I talked to someone about that just a day or two ago. No, come to him for more faith. Tell him, I don't have the faith. Faith comes by hearing through his word, right? Oh, no, I'm waiting for repentance. Well, cry out to him right now for repentance. Come empty-handed, the Bible says, bankrupt, condemned, guilty as charged. And he offers you rest for your souls. As that great hymn puts it, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. He is willing. Doubt no more. Come ye weary, heavy laden. Sound familiar? Straight from this text. Lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. But hang on, you say, Jesus, you just told us in the previous verses that I've point, I mentioned earlier, verses, uh, particularly verse 25 and verse 26 and 27, it's already been decided, predestined. The, this difficult doctrine of election. Lost souls are either chosen or they're not. But, but, but then now, verse 28, there's an invitation. So, so which is it? And the answer is both, right? Without apology, without contradiction, in one breath, Jesus declares divine sovereignty, and the next breath, human responsibility. God chooses, and you must choose. Which is it? Both, right? He will not choose for you, and you cannot choose unless he has first chosen you. This, this Bible text sits in perfect harmony with the whole word of God that declares both doctrines in unison with one mighty voice. Unconditional election of some to repent and believe and the universal offer to all to repent and believe. Many are called, Jesus said, but few are chosen. 
Matthew 22. We see this time and again. Go and read John chapter 3, side by side. Predestination and human responsibility. Go and read John chapter 6, shoulder to shoulder. God chooses sovereignly, and you are responsible to come to Jesus. Matthew, uh, 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 Romans chapter 10, right after Romans chapter 9. Predestination and human obligation. Divine election and the great invitation. And the Lord has many invitations in Scripture, doesn't he, friends? Genesis chapter 3, it starts in the garden with fallen man. The hound of heaven goes to work, seeking and saving the lost. Adam, where are you? What happened? Who, who told you that you were naked? Isaiah 55. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Remember that great banquet parable Jesus told in Luke 14, where the self-righteous are turning down the invitation, so the host of the feast says, go out quickly too. Remember? The highways and the byways, the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled. How's that for a church growth strategy? And the blind and, and the, the, the lame. And the servant says, sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master says to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. I get the impression our loving Savior wants a full house. And so he keeps inviting Come to me. John chapter 6, remember after the 5,000 have been miraculously fed, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. All the Father gives will come to me. That's predestination. And he who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. That's human responsibility. John chapter 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. No part of Jesus' public ministry is more Glorious than this, it is big-hearted, wide-open, full-throated invitations to any, to all. It was wonderful. Yesterday we were having a uh, long-overdue sort of a, what I know you like to do as well, a new member's braai uh, in our home, which we've missed doing in, in recent years. And um, some of the newer members were talking about how this whole transgender movement and all of these sexual refugees that are getting chewed up and spit out and looking back and saying, what did I do to myself? What have I done? I, I believe the lie. I want to leave that old, miserable, transgender, whatever life. And this new member was kind of saying in their own words what, what she learned from, from, her, her, from her church and from her leaders, but it's so nice when you hear other people saying it. We need to be ready. We need to welcome. We need to be ready to call these people to repentance and offer them life in Christ. I said, amen, amen. Even not just for unbelievers, but also for believers who must keep coming to him. First Peter chapter 2 says, as living stones, you come to him. Uh, even the famous verse in Revelation chapter 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And so how does the whole Bible end? Revelation chapter 22. A series of invitations. Let the one who is thirsty come. Whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Again, as we love to sing, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, 
Perhaps that's you here this morning. Fightings within, fears without. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Now, brothers and sisters, we come to our outline. Let's look at four reasons to come to Jesus. Four reasons to accept this great invitation, to to find rest for your weary soul. At salvation, if you're not saved or not sure you're saved, and throughout the Christian life, in order to stay saved, we could say, reasons to come and to keep coming to Christ. First, we'll look at your need, and then we'll look at his promise, his yoke, and his heart. First of all, let's look, verse 28a, your need. The great J.C. Ryle sums it up well. Unrest is one great characteristic of this weary world. Hurry, vexation, failure, disappointment stare us in the face on every side. I love the pastor's heart of Spurgeon. He says, some in this place are panting for rest. In this great city, remember in London, 150 years ago or so, he says, in this great city there's much trouble, sorrow, unrest, misery, distraction. Sounds a lot like uh, Josie, right? Here in this place. When I look on this congregation, I know I could not bear to hear the tale of sorrow that would be unfolded if each man were to tell of his inward anguish. Many a cheerful face, Proverbs tells us, covers a sad heart. The weight of human misery is enough to make the axles of the earth to break. And by the way, if you remember, again, look back at verse 25. This contrast between proud, wise, intelligent souls and and humble souls the point here is going to be the wise and intelligent, verse 25, the, that are unsaved, that are too good for Jesus uh, to humble themselves and become with a childlike faith, they are the ones who are not burdened. They're not weary over their sin and guilt. They think they're fine, right? What did Jesus say? I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners, not those who don't think they need a Savior, but infants, Babes in faith see their need and they come. Notice, specifically, as we talk about your need, he says, it's interesting, a combination of two different Greek uh, terms here. First, all who are weary. And it's an active term in the original. It's working to the point of exhaustion. It's fatigued from toiling and burdened with labor. But then it's followed with a more passive term in the Greek, heavy laden. In other words, loaded down with a burden with uh, the, the continual ongoing results of carrying it around, being stuck with this heavy weight, this awful load upon you. Again, as we love to sing, are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And if we ask what burden, and I hope you are asking that question, what what Weight is Jesus talking about? Well, verse 29 will go on to make it all the clearer. It's your souls. It's a, a crushing weight, a spiritual burden on your souls that's in view. It's under the yoke of sin and, and all the sorrow that it brings. The, 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 the heavy load of a guilty conscience, knowing all the ways you've broken the law of God. We just finished a, a Sunday night series on the Ten Commandments. Knowing every day in thought and word and deed, we violate his commands. Sins of omission, sins of commission, doing what we should not, failing to do what we should, living with the bitter fruits and the sad results of a sin-cursed world and a depraved heart. Even in the New York Harbor, as some of you have visited and all of you have seen pictures of, we have 
perhaps you could even say a secular, a historical, and a, quite a prominent statue, the Lady Liberty, illustrating this. Those famous words written on her statue, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. How much greater than the Lord Jesus, the author of all freedom, declares the root problem beneath all human bondage and, and suffering. Our sin-sick, restless souls, and no one portrays this better than Bunyan, right? Pilgrim's progress. Before Christian is converted, as he launches out on his journey from the city of destruction, headed to where? The celestial city, right? He tells his family, quote, I've lost all peace because of a great burden weighing heavily upon me. And then Bunyan describes how Christian speaks to evangelists. And he says, I fear this burden on my back will drive me lower than the grave and into hell itself. And evangelist answers, find the wicked gate. In other words, the narrow way, right? The language of Matthew chapter 7. There you will learn how to be relieved of that miserable, heavy burden. All along the pilgrim way, Christian meets with these various characters who are each promising some version of relief or rest or comfort from his burden of sin and his lack of Christian assurance, but without the cross. So you meet all these different shady, dodgy characters, Mr. This and Mr. That, right? But most of them are bringing false gospels, offering a a false hope of a false rest through a false salvation. Mr. Worldly Wiseman, for example, declares that Christian can quickly find rest and be relieved of his sin, guilt, burden, If you would visit the village of morality, some of you have been there, perhaps more frequently than you realize, and we all know others who love to visit there. And and there you'll you'll find Mr. Legality, oh, and his son, Mr. Civility. And and in other words, your burden will be lifted if you try harder to to keep God's law and be civil and moral and upright and and mannerly with good etiquette and, and lots of good deeds until the day comes that Christian reaches Calvary. And he encounters the the cross, the true biblical gospel, real salvation. And as he approaches it, we read, Bunyan writes, His burden came loose from his shoulders. It fell from his back and began to roll downwards until it tumbled into the open grave to be seen no more. After this, he says, Christian was glad and light. He exclaimed with a joyful heart, Through Christ's sorrows he has given me rest, and through his death he has given me life. And Christian kept looking at the cross until springs of tears welled up in his eyes and came pouring down his cheeks. He leaped for joy three times, Bunyan says, as he went on his way singing these words. I came this far burdened with my sin. No, nothing could ease the grief I was in. Until I came here, what a place is this? Must this be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall off of my back. Here the cords that bound it to me will crack. Blessed cross, blessed grave, Blessed rather be the man who was put to shame for me. Rejoicing at the rest for the weary and heavy laden that only Christ can give. Look nowhere else. Look to no place else. If you're looking for pardon for your sin by by trying harder to be good, by ticking the boxes and going to church and jumping through the religious hoops and uh, improving your behavior. But the harder you try, have you ever noticed? Without Christ, the more miserable you you become, the faster you run on your treadmill of of 
performance, uh, the, the, the more miserable you are and the more frustrated you become. Chained to pains of your past and fears of your future and anxieties about the present. We see these weary souls often, don't we? They're running off to Asbury or uh, running off to Angus or every form of revivalism and, and emotionalism and every tent crusade and fake healings and false prophecies and phony tongues and experiences. The word faith movement. Some of you have been saved out of this. The doctrine of positive confession. You are tormented because at the root of it all, the reason you don't have rest and you don't have healing and you don't have real spiritual breakthroughs is you don't have enough faith. Shame on you. Damn your soul until you can muster up enough faith to really know Jesus and be like us. Because we got the formula figured out. We see others flocking to Mount Moriah in Polokwane or Mecca in the Middle East or the Ganges River in India. We see even Jerusalem pilgrimage to the Holy Land. We clarify and glad to have some of your people coming with us in two months. David DeBrain and I are emphatic. This is not a pilgrimage. We won't be doing baptisms or communion. Sorry. That's what your local church and your pastors are for. We're on a study tour to learn the Bible better. And Israel is a cool place to do it. This is not a pilgrimage. And there's nothing more spiritual than your regular Sunday services with the ordinary means of grace. That's what you need, right? If you want to learn the Bible and study the geography and the history, cool, get on the bus. People are shocked. It's a Jordan River. Why aren't you going to do baptisms? Because it's not a church. (laughs) Everyone's looking for rest in the wrong places without seeing, accepting God's diagnosis of their soul's fatigue, of their spiritual exhaustion. Denying their need, excusing their sin. We see this so often, don't we? Renaming, mislabeling their sin as this or that syndrome. Evading their guilt. Playing the victim, ignoring their conscience. Ignorant of God's law. See your need according to the word of God. Number two, the second reason to come to Christ Bring your weary soul to him for rest. Not only your need, but notice now his promise. This is found in verse 28b, and you could say verse 29c. Twice, verse 28 and 29, his promise. Standing in God's place, God the Son, equal to the Father, the rest giver, as, uh, as, we're about, as I'll mention in a minute in chapter 12, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus. Just as God rested on the Seventh day, right? After creation. So he invites us here to share in his rest. As a whole chapter of Hebrews 4 also explains. Now and and finally in heaven. Do you understand, friends, as God sent Noah, Noah, in the Hebrew, Mr. Rest, Mr. Comfort, to rescue souls from judgment before the flood, The door was open, this ark of promised rest. Uh, A dove, by the way, would later return to find rest on that boat. So now the Son of God stands as the great supplier of rest in the place of God the Father. As God promised rest to Israel in the promised land. In many ways, the whole story of the Bible and salvation is the theology of rest. And so here Jesus offers an even greater rest. And, and by the way, there aren't chapter breaks in the original, right? So Matthew 12 goes on. The, next, the first half of Matthew chapter 12 
is back-to-back Sabbath controversies all about where God's true rest is found. Is it found in the man-made legalism of the Pharisees or in true salvation? In Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. Notice here in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and, interesting, in the original, it's one word in the Greek. It takes four English words to say it. I will give rest to you. In other words, this Greek word, I'll rest you, I'll refresh you, I'll relieve and repose you, I'll put you at ease, I'll calm and I'll quiet you. Interesting, the subject is also emphatic in the original. I myself, I I personally, Jesus says, will give you rest. In other words, as your scribes and Pharisees and and rabbis cannot and would not ever do for you. What a gift, what what a comfort. You can't earn it, you can't work for it, you, you can't pay for it. God must give it and he does give it to all who will receive it. The older commentator on Matthew, Broadus, puts it well. All religions profess to give rest. They claim to offer some sort of comfort for the soul. But he says Christianity alone can truly fulfill the promise. Others may give a kind of repose, but it's, a, it's that of self-righteousness or, or self-salvation or a self-delusion. But no, he says Christianity affords a well-founded and a lasting repose. Come unto me, you weary, and I will give you rest. O blessed voice of Jesus, which comes to hearts oppressed, said the hymn writer. Look again at the text in verse 29. He said in verse 28, I'll give you rest. Verse 29, you will find rest. And you might see this as in capitals. Never once has God broken this promise for any weary sinner who believes. And this seems to be taken from Jeremiah chapter 6. And let me read the full verse. Jeremiah 6, verse 28, uh, uh, or a, a, a whole verse actually in Jeremiah 6. I don't have the specific reference in that chapter, but it reads as follows. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Jeremiah chapter 6. So notice, again, it's not automatic. It's not unconditionally. You must come from where you are to where he is by faith in response to his word to know his rest. No greater joy than seeing people receive this salvation rest. As you've been rejoicing lately, my son and daughter-in-law and granddaughter were here recently celebrating with you and I believe you had 10, 11 baptisms and a number of new members and what a joy. But especially that thrill, we don't always get this. I think the Lord knows we would, it would go to our heads. And many people, especially if they're raised in a Christian home, it's not immediate when they get saved. It's not dramatic. It's not overnight. It, it's only later they realize, okay, you know, around about this time in my life I came to understand. But there are some people, when you are praying with them and you're presenting the gospel and you've said, this is what you do, this is... Uh, the bad news, this is the good news, this is the gospel. Uh, let's cry out to God now for salvation. And you pray, and they open their eyes, and they look at you, and they say, I can't explain it. It's like this, this burden has just been lifted. I feel like I'm a whole new person. And you look at them and say, well, that's because you are. <laughs> that's exactly what the Word of God says. The massive weight is lifted. The burden is gone. Why would you refuse such rest? I say to you this morning, and you and I ought to, we go to a a weary and a burdened world, and we say to them, take Jesus at his word. Dare to believe this promise. Prove his faithfulness. Where else will you find this rest? I mean, look at all the heavy junk that you have been carrying on your back. 
Has your sexual immorality and impurity brought you rest? All those parties and, and, and addictions, what have they done to relieve your burden in any sort of lasting way? All those friends, have they really brought you rest? Uh, climbing the corporate ladder, has it, has it brought you peace? All your fitness and your, your, your fancy diets, <laughs> have they really brought you lasting rest? Owning all that stuff, has it really satisfied your weary soul? All, all those big plans or, or, or future hopes or retirement dreams or, or perfect holidays and, and escapes, has it ever calmed your troubled spirit in any lasting way? Ah, you will find rest for your souls. I will give you rest, Jesus says. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down, O weary one, lay down your head upon my chest. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. Um, Friday night, a few of us from uh, Antioch and a couple like-minded guys, it's a very small tribe in this uh, land who actually... Uh, cares about basketball, and it was the first time in my 25 years here we saw a live game over on the East Rand near Eastgate, and basketball is great, but it's got that whole worldly NBA culture, and I said to my family, that's the first in 25 years, I think I'd be fine if it was 25 more years before I went to see one of those games because of the whole culture. It's the music, it's the, just all the worldliness and the modesty and the drinking, and you just want to enjoy a decent sporting event, but it's just so surrounded now by this lust for rest, this, this anxiousness, this emptiness of the world that can't just appreciate a wholesome event anymore. It's just become so uh, I, I, idolized and so empty because they don't know. They're looking for rest in all the wrong places. Number three, your need, his promise. Number three, his yoke. His yoke. I know we are all city folk here, though I know some of you have a better farming background than me. But these are agrarian. This is an agrarian audience Jesus talks to. They knew all about plowing a field with a team of oxen. I was interested to discover two oxen don't equal twice as much as one. They equal three times as much because of the combined pulling power, right? In the harness, under the yoke, that, that heavy crossbar, that, that wooden frame where two animals would be coupled at the neck, Right? and forced to pull farming equipment across a field, up and down, up and down, under the hot Mediterranean sun. Perhaps Jesus himself, imagine, used to make some of these wooden yokes in his father's carpentry shop in Nazareth. Take my yoke. The Jews often spoke of taking on the yoke of Torah, plus these all of their... Talmudic and endless rabbinic requirements and all the minutiae of hygiene rules for looking clean and appearing holy. The, the, the yoke of God's kingdom they talk about, the yoke of God's law, the yoke of the commandments, this heavy burden of man-made obligations, this wearisome weight of a works-based salvation. In, in other words, they, they taught like every other dead religion and every, every other false salvation. Oh sure, you'll be saved when you climb this tall ladder. You can find rest when you achieve your own righteousness and earn your own merit through countless rituals. Remember later in Matthew 23, Jesus would rebuke the hypocritical Pharisees for tying up heavy burdens, laying them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And then later, the Jerusalem council, remember in Acts chapter 15, 
it was a debate about what was required of Gentile converts because the Judaizers were saying, no, no, uh, and upsetting the churches, saying you can't be a true Christian if you don't also get circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And so Peter stood up there in Acts 15, and he used this same yoke imagery. And he says, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples, these new Christians, a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And then one other important cross-reference is Galatians 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Also, with the Galatian believers being troubled by these legalistic Judaizers. This is a graphic, it's a cruel image that Jesus has in the backdrop here of his promise of, of his yoke and his rest. Uh, it's not just yoked animals, it's, it's, it's human bondage. It's the Jews for 400 years in Egypt. In the bitterness of their tears, remember that they would commemorate every year at, uh, in the Pesach, in the Passover Seder, uh, with the uh, bitter salt water. It's the evils of the African slave trade on this continent. It's today's child trafficking and sex captives. It's that kind of image of a bitter yoke of human oppression and captivity. But far worse than all those hideous images combined is this bondage of unforgiven sin. Uh, The burden of guilt, the weight of eternal condemnation before a holy God and a righteous lawgiver. It's against that backdrop that Jesus gives this great invitation. Take my yoke. You say, well, then what is Jesus' yoke? If I had to put it in one word, it's obedience. I prefer two words, Christian obedience. Or if you want one word, discipleship. It's his new covenant authority. It's what the New Testament goes on to call the law of Christ. It's what the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all about. This superior internal heart righteousness in contrast to that of the Pharisees, remember? Which was empty and external, fake and and artificial, self-righteous and damning and not rest-giving. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, the law of Christ now fulfilled in Jesus with new hearts and the Spirit of God empowering us. In contrast to that cruel yoke, Jesus is saying here, don't miss this backdrop. In, in con- otherwise, this text I find today it just gets psychologized into a lot of therapeutic, oh, whatever, whatever rest Jesus does for you and whatever that means you might drive or, or buy or, or, or wear. Or <laughs> no, <laughs> we must define Bible words with, with Bible definitions, Right? In contrast to all other religious yokes and moral yokes and systems of obedience and self-improvement and behavioral adjustment, in contrast to any, uh, let's include rehab and and 12-step and 10 pillars and 7 rules and 5 keys, (laughs) this never-ending treadmill of self-salvation. In contrast, here's the yoke I offer you. Take my yoke. Keep reading there in verse 29. Learn from me, mathete, same word from which we get mathetes, a disciple. Learn from the revelation about who God is, as he promised in verse 27. The saving knowledge Christ alone imparts through sovereign election and through the great invitation. Become my disciple. Sit at my feet. Understand, study, that's the idea. Receive my instruction. Enlist in my army. <laughs> Enroll in my school. Submit to me as your supreme teacher and master and educator. 
Let this sink in for a minute, friends. Jesus is saying, your Torah is fulfilled in me. Look to me to find God and to do his will, to know God's law, to learn his ways. Follow me. Someone put it well. Christ has erected a great school and invited us to be his scholars. How do I know I'm a Christian? How do you know if you've really come to Christ for salvation? I know I've come to Christ when I have come under Christ and I'm following after Christ. And I'm wearing his yoke. That's what the New Testament goes on to say constantly is the mark of a true believer. Ephesians 4, no longer the futile, the filthy old way of life, but you did not learn Christ in that way. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, but we have the mind of Christ. First. Uh, Peter chapter 2, we follow in his steps. 1 John chapter 2, we walk in the same manner as he walked. My classmates, are you with me? <laughs> My fellow students, right? Fellow pupils and, and learners. As, uh, uh, how is our Christian discipleship? How is our Christian education going? We don't get a ho- school holiday. <laughs> that, It's lifelong learning, a phrase my my parents like to use. It's permanent enrollment. Even for all eternity, by the way, we'll never stop learning more and more about Christ. And by the way, friends, notice it's not a question of if you're yoked. It's just which yoke you're wearing, right? We know that. It's not if you are a worshiper, if you are governed and ruled by some authority. Don't believe the lie of autonomy and the, 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 the myth of secularism that says you can free the freedom is, is having no yoke and having no law and, and no God and doing whatever you wish. Wrong. You are a slave. It's just whose slave are you? Right? The Bible is very clear on that. We're all under a yoke. It's either Christ's gracious yoke or it's a cruel yoke. It's either a benevolent Authority, or it's a brutal one in the end. It's either a liberating Lord, or it is a crushing and a cruel one. Either you're in the shackles and chains of the world and the flesh and the devil, the Bible says, or you're under the gracious scepter, the glad slavery of King Jesus. Notice these descriptions in verse 30. Jesus goes on to describe his yoke with two wonderful, powerful terms. My yoke is what? Easy. It's a Greek term for useful, suitable. In other words, my yoke is good, it's pleasant, it's kindly. I like the way someone translates it. It's lined with love. It's not onerous or chafing or abrasive. Listen to how Matthew Henry puts it. When Jesus says my yoke is easy, it, it, it tells us that this is the nature of all of Christ's commands. So reasonable in themselves, so profitable to us, so powerful is his assistance So suitable are his encouragements. So strong are his consolations. Truly, this is a yoke of pleasantness. My yoke is easy. And then keep reading. What does he say next? My burden is light. His yoke feels like a (laughs) non-yoke. A burden that feels like a non-burden. What a sweet irony. What a glad subjection. What a happy surrender. What a, like I said, (laughs) right right on cue. Right? We'll have to... Arrange that at Antioch. Can we, can, can we, Kevin, can we like transplant? We'll, we'll swap you a, a, few, a few hymnals for a few pine trees. <laughs> His yoke is blissful. It's bearable. It's, it's blessed, you could say, because it brings us into fellowship with himself. As we're about to see, he's the gentle and lowly one. He gives us right now already his rest. 
It's easy and light because Christ, think about it, is in the yoke with us, our yoke fellow. He doesn't just treat us as, I'm afraid too many people have this view of the Christian life. Well, I'm kind of the Lord's camel or, or mule, you know, and he just barks his commands at me. No, listen to his word. It's my yoke, he says. It's, it's learn from me. I don't just obey for him, I obey with him. I wear his yoke. I have him indwelling me by his spirit. That's the doctrine of regeneration. He gives me a new nature that delights to do his will. The old is gone, the, the new has come, right? If any man be in Christ. He changes my desires and my wants. He reorders my priorities. Oh, but you say, Tim, there's a lot of hard words from Jesus. They don't sound very easy and light. Let's be frank. I mean, pick a few, right? Take, take up your cross and deny yourself, right? Follow me. Love me more than father, mother, sister, brother, parent, child. Give all you have to the poor. Count the cost. Lose your life to find it. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. How is that easy and light? Sounds very demanding and very costly. Not so. In the final analysis, Jesus says, in fact, as we know, because he gives us the strength by his spirit, he gives us his own presence, his peace, his joy, Ultimately, it's easy. It's light. I delight to do your will. Your law is in my heart, the Bible says, right? I will run in the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. Psalm 119. 1 John chapter 5. His commandments are not burdensome. You want to talk about hard? The Christian life isn't hard. In the end, sin is hard. <laughs> Proverbs says, the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the wicked is treacherous. Stumbling in the dark, enslaved to the world and the flesh and the devil. That's a miserable life. This is a good life. Don't get it backwards. <laughs> my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Number four. A fourth reason to come to Christ for his peace, to bring your weary soul to him for true rest. We saw your need, his promise, his yoke. Number four, his heart. Jesus isn't done here. Because if, if all of the previous points were offered in a cold, an impersonal, a clinical sort of way by Jesus, reluctantly, distant, aloof, you know, begrudgingly, hesitatingly, then there wouldn't be much comfort here. Notice, I've left that phrase in verse 29 to draw it out in this fourth point, his heart. Notice verse 29, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Where was there ever a kinder teacher, a more gracious master, a more loving Lord? It's the only place in all four Gospels, 89 chapters of biblical text, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only place Jesus uses this language, this is my heart. It's like he bears his soul at this point. I mean, this would be worth 10 sermons on its own. Here's what my very heart is like. It's what makes me tick. If you want to know what's the essential core of Jesus, what drives and defines him, when he pulls back the veil, he lifts up the curtain. He says, this is it. I am gentle and humble in heart. That first word, gentle, it's meek. It's, it's related to humble. Remember, we just celebrated Palm Sunday, right? Two weeks ago. Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey. Zechariah prophesied. The idea is considerate, courteous, understanding, patient, long-suffering. Unlike us so often, right? Jesus is not trigger-happy. He's not harsh or reactionary. He's not easily exasperated and irritable. 
never severe or sour toward us as we wrongly imagine too often. Jesus, are you ready for this? Is the most understanding person on the planet. Someone put it well. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. For I am gentle. Behold, the Lamb of God, right? Perfectly self-controlled, always able to be angry at the right times and never at the wrong times. Always submissive to his Father's will. That's part of the idea here. Never proud or peevish, grumbling, complaining about the Father's plan, the Father's purpose. No, obedient. Totally. Gentle of heart. As he's going to say, he goes on to say in chapter 12, remember? Uh, a bruised reed he will not break. Uh, a smoking flax he will not put out. He won't quarrel or cry out. He won't hear, uh, no one will hear his voice in the streets. Matthew 12, verses 19 and 20. Paul would appeal to the Corinthians, remember, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ when he had some hard things to say. Notice next, I am gentle and what? Humble. Different Greek word for low, low-lying, figuratively uh, lowly, of a humble estate, socially unimpressive, without power, without privilege, as it were. And time and again, we see Jesus modeling this, right, with his weak and his faltering disciples how did he react? Remember Mary and Martha at Bethany. Their dear brother Lazarus has died. Or, or Peter, he's just denied Jesus three times. Or, or, or the anxious disciples uh, looking for the body. Or, or, or doubting Thomas, wanting more proof. Disappointing souls, frustrating candidates, and, and slow learners. And they came to Jesus, and each time what kind of teacher did they find? Meek, lowly, gentle, humble in heart. Four reasons to come and find rest in Christ alone at salvation and throughout sanctification all the way in our Christian lives until we meet him. We come because we see, you see your need, you believe his promise, you take on his yoke, and you rest in his heart. The great Scottish covenanter, and Puritan of sorts, Samuel Rutherford said, there are many heads resting on Christ's bosom, yet still there is room for yours. Still there is room for yours. I'll close with this uh, famous painting of the great, I think Italian, Gustave Dore, 1883. It's called The Veil of Tears. You can look it up. He painted it to illustrate this verse, verse 28. And one Art commentator describes, the whole scene is laid in a deep valley between a high and steep hills. The, the light is dim and the day seems to be drawing to a close. At the end of the valley, in the foreground of the picture, is a crowd of men and women of almost every class and station. And it's, it's a masterful painting of a, of a biblical text here. There are, uh, there's a monarch showing how uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. There is a statesman, there's a warrior, they're weary in their country's service. There is the outcast, and then there's also the respectable. You see the sick, you see those who are whole and healthy. You see aged ones who are bent with years in this painting. You see children of all ages. You even see a sleeping babe on the breast of a worn and an anxious mother. But then at the farther end of the valley, you see spanning the sky a rainbow of hope. And, and under it, the meek form of the Son of Man, Jesus, bearing his cross and beckoning with his hand, inviting all to come to him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Please bow as we pray.
Listen to how Horatius Bonar put it so well. Make this your prayer, our prayer. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. O Lord, we thank you. Please cause us to receive, to stop looking for rest and comfort and peace in all the wrong people, all the wrong places, in ourselves, and in so many other foolish and false options. May we truly, may some here today, young or old, men or women, who have never truly known salvation, never truly found rest for their troubled soul, forgiveness for their sin, release of the burden of their guilt and condemnation and law-breaking before a holy God and righteous judge, may they come to Jesus and find true and lasting rest. He who is gentle and humble in heart, who provides not just rest for our bodies, yes, one day, fully and finally, but best of all, most of all, rest for our souls. And may we who know you, Lord Jesus, continue coming to you and increasingly learning from you and wearing your yoke and being known for obedience to your law and your commands, believing in fact that this is the easy, this is the light, this is the blessed and happy way in contrast to the misery and the emptiness and the uh, bondage of sin. We praise you, Lord, and make us bold and clear to go to a restless world to clearly explain and uh, confidently proclaim the Prince of Peace, the, the, the Giver of Rest, the Son of God, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ alone who can provide rest in His crucified and risen and exalted name. We pray all these things. Amen.